Hello. Where are we? Ah, well, hopefully we'll know soon. But in the meantime, what you need to know is that you're listening to Resonance, broadcasting on 104.4 FM, and this hour is devoted to Freaky Trigger and the Lollards of Pop. I'm Magnus Anderson, and I'm very pleased that this week to have with me, I've got uh, Katie Grocott, both halves of the Ewing brothers, Al and Tom Ewing. It's a glorious February day, and we're off on a brief jaunt in the sun, where, as ever, we have every intention of being silly about the serious and candid about the mysterious, and dropping science and scrabbling around in the hope that you can pick it back up again. As it's such a pleasant day, we've come out to the countryside, and we're looking for somewhere to sit and talk for a while, and perhaps swap a story or two. Now, where are we? Ah, this is nice. We seem to have found ourselves in a lovely field in the countryside. I wonder if everyone can feel the romance of the place. Tom? Yes, I see a lovely cow <laughs> um, standing in the lovely field, uh, kind of mooing gently. Katie? I see bunnies frolicking in a corner of the field among daisies and cowslips. And Al? Well, I'm, I'm noticing that... It's uh, it's got sort of a baleful stare to it, doesn't it? <laughs> almost, almost as though its its eyes are filled with anger and hatred, but uh, also some butterflies. Well, that's fantastic. We also have with us a wireless, and with luck, we'll be able to listen to some songs. Let's see if we can tune into one now. Did anyone recognise that? No. 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 (laughs) At all? It seemed to be rather a grim song, but I have a feeling we're all going to know it. No. Think about the lyrics. It talked of grey clouds, the colours all washed out, the sun setting on a lonely field. No. No. (laughs) Was it horse rotivator? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see if we can get it again. Maybe it's still on. That's right. Rainbow actually has an impressively depressing middle for eight, middle eight. 
Without well, hearing yeah. I, I can see a rainbow too. So was it? Is it? Is it that the the top kids TV show Rainbow um, sampled, to use the modern term, <laughs> um, the flute bit and the chorus, or is it that Rod, Jane, and Freddie, or whoever, are secretly emo? We're, we're we're listening to this kind of or recording this miserable. Well, not particularly miserable. It's kind of you know the the daily cycle of sunrise and sunset is being tracked here i think that's what it is i mean the the lyrics when you you listen to them they they're sort of more downbeat in this downbeat section but they're talking about you know the turn of seasons and uh the kind of sights you might see in in as the sun sets and the rainbow disappears i guess they don't actually mention rain at all which is sort of a prerequisite <laughs> for a rainbow <laughs> Well, maybe maybe what they're implying is that you've got the sun of this jolly section, and then the the misery, the abject misery of the uh, of the, uh, the the miserable heart, and together you get a rainbow out of the two of them. In the, so in the same way, you can't have a rainbow without the the sunny outlook of George and the misery of Zippy. I, mean, I think that's around. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought nice. Bungle was the miserable one, but uh, anyway, that seemed quite cheery yeah, to me. A bittersweet experience there. Well, that's absolutely right. What but were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think that draws out is that uh, in any given uh, sort of um, uh, plateau of, of uh, um, description or narrative, they, they sort of seem to be suggesting there must be a contrast somewhere. And uh, I wonder if that's maybe something we're going to explore later on in the programme. It could be, Magnus. Mm. Well, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try finding another song. See what we get. Good evening. This is the intergalactic operator. Can I help you? Yes. I'm trying to reach Flight Commander P.R. Johnson on Mars Flight 247. Very well. Hold on, please. Yes, Thank you, operator. Hi, darling. How you doing? Hey, baby. Were you sleeping? Oh, I'm sorry, but I've been really missing you.
Breaking song of space. Uh, yeah, there's something about the, um, the the space war as mentioned in that song, and uh, that that cow over there that's still <laughs> still fixing us with quite a quite the a baleful gaze. Yeah, uh, it, it reminds me um, of all things of uh, the scrolls. The scrolls. The scrolls. Uh, that shape shifting alien race that was uh, was and is popular in uh, in Marvel comics. Um, now, I should explain to our listeners that Al himself is a comics writer. Yes. And a very fine one, too. I believe you have a series on at the moment in Judge yeah, Dredd, the you, magazine. Um, if, if I can plug it for a, a couple of seconds, uh, if you pick up Judge Dredd, the magazine, um, at the moment it's running a story called Tempest, which, uh, which I wrote, and it's currently halfway through. So uh, still plenty of time to pick up the back <laughs> issues. Anyway, back to the scrolls. <laughs> um, yeah, no, these are... These are sort of a, an interesting invention of uh, of Stanley and Jack Kirby's. It's um, I'm pretty sure coming out of the uh, the sort of pod people fifties uh, paranoia. So the kind of the, the it's been popularised in movies, snatches. maybe. Yeah, yeah, the body mm-hmm. snatchers kind of thing, where mm-hmm. you know these are aliens who can become mm-hmm. become you. Although obviously it's in since it's in uh, it, in comics, it's less fatal <laughs> than the body snatchers. Um, no, they. I mean, the first the first kind of appearance pretty much <laughs> sets sets the bar for all future uh, all future appearances of these things. Um, it sets I'm, the bar very high. Oh, incredibly high! <laughs> I'm sure um, I'm sure all our listeners are familiar with the Fantastic Four of uh, recent film fame. Mm-hmm. Um, in that you have uh, you know the Human Torch who can burst into flame, the Thing, very strong, made of stone, uh, the Invisible Girl who. As the name suggests, is invisible. Yes, much much of the time mm-hmm. can do nothing else at this point. Uh, very. <laughs> she she acquires better powers later. Um, yeah, well, she kind of has to, to be honest. <laughs> Surely, no aliens, however cunning, would be a match for them. Well, you'd have thought, but uh, 
the the story opens. This is Fantastic Four two. Uh, the second, the second ever issue. Story opens with the Fantastic Four seemingly committing crimes. <gasps> I know it's stealing, but, stealing diamonds, wrecking, wrecking things. But Generally, how? Uh, well, how? How indeed? And it turns out it's these um, slightly lizard-faced uh, aliens with um, who are using devices. <laughs> devices. Yes, all sorts of devices to uh, duplicate the Fantastic Four's powers, like uh, covering themselves in petrol and setting them alight. And uh, <laughs> Does that not kill them? Well, they're alien. Are they kind of a bit tough? They're a bit. They're a bit tough. Oh, they're, okay. they're tough-esque. Anyway, oh, uh, long story short, the Fantastic Four get put in prison and escape and uh, all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> well, that sounds like it's, it's nicely resolved. It's, it's a rollicking. It's a rollicking thing. But uh, the resolution comes when Mister Fantastic, uh, genius leader of the mm-hmm. FF, imitates the uh, the scroll that is imitating him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And gets on board. Gets on board their spaceship that's uh, that's in orbit. So right now the scrolls think they're talking to one of their own. Yes. But their own is in the form of Mister Fantastic. Candidly, they speak English rather than the, <laughs> rather than the scroll language to him. <laughs> Can, can you stand the excitement? Um, yeah, no, they, they speak English. They don't ask for any form of password or identity check or, uh, or identity card, which um, is a bit of a failing <laughs> in a species which can change their face. I think it would be dishonour. Yes, I suppose. Yes, if, if, if they're all on Scout's honour. It's, uh, it's the honour system. They, they, they might send people to Coventry. Uh, anyway, uh, Reed Richards then, his master stroke. Mm-hmm. He shows them uh, photographs, what he claims are photographs of Earth's defences, Earth's invincible defences. Actually, it turns out they're comic panels clipped from that month's crop of cheap monster magazines. <laughs> Such as Tim Bubar, who you may have heard about a few, <laughs> a few, a few weeks, weeks ago. ago. I, I pray they don't suspect, <laughs> thinks Reed, as uh, the scrolls pass around the, uh, the I, cheap, tatty bits of newsprint that he has gambled the lives of every man, woman and child on planet Earth on. So if they don't believe that these pictures of monsters are what are actually crawling around on the Earth... Well, all they do. Yeah, but fortunately they do. And then they, <laughs> then they give Reed a medal for bravery. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, anyway, there still, um, still leaves a couple of Skrull agents on Earth, and uh, they're dealt with by being hypnotised to believe that they're cows. <gasps> now, wait a minute. Yes. We saw a cow <laughs> earlier today. It's gone. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's wandered off. Yeah. For a moment. <laughs> wandered off to report to its superiors, perhaps. So yeah. what, I, I take it that you're bringing up the scrolls because they're more important than just that story that you're well you're from you. this slightly inauspicious beginning. Mm-hmm. They sort of spread like a virus through um, through the stories, and and they sort of crop up again and again because they're they're pretty much a story. They're a story bucket species. You can tell pretty much any story. And, and of course, the, um, in the Marvel universe, uh, characters can appear in one comic or another. So it wasn't oh, only sure. Fantastic Four. Sure. Well, I mean, they, you know, they're a they're a catch-all enemy for um, for pretty much any any character or you, you you can tell any sort of story as long as you want your story to involve outrageous alien <laughs> stupidity. Yes, that's that's the common thread running through uh, running through all of this. So, I mean, you know, there's in the seventies they told a, a sort of rollicking galactic war story, which mm-hmm. was absolutely unutterably dreadful. <laughs> but uh, less of, but. You know, they had the scrolls fighting their, you know, their nearest neighbour with Earth caught in the middle. Right. And then, you know, right now they're currently doing a thing where um, they finally got the editorial cohesion, I think, to be able to do this one, mm-hmm. which is uh, a long-running thing where anybody might be a scroll. They've invaded. It's, it's invasion of the body snatched all over again. Well, that would have been the obvious story, story I'd have thought. Yeah, they never, they never got around to, to doing it. They do, I mean, they did 
A, people have got round to um, the idea of a story continuing for like a year, perhaps two years, mm-hmm. um, with building this subplot. Whereas in the past, you know, uh, anybody you know could be a scroll would be on the on page three. <laughs> Captain America would suddenly shout, Haha, I'm a scroll," <laughs> and then it would all be wrapped up like ten pages later. And so, but that sounds very expensive for one thing for uh, for a comics fan. I mean, you must be buying dozens of comics to pick it's, this thing up. Oh, oh, oh! Uh, that was a, a passing woodland outlaw, I think. <laughs> or was he? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, a, a passing thing. Anyway, um, yeah. Well, it's it's only one of many uh, comics these days have fallen into a uh, a continuing epic cycle where mm. uh, each also it's important just to, to note that comics these days or at least the, the kind of comics that feature the scrolls are basically only bought by yeah 40 something <laughs> men uh, who, have, who have a large amount of disposable <laughs> income because they possibly don't have a family to support <laughs> goodness me so um so they can yes, afford the, the vast number of scroll related titans also mm-hmm. you can download it off the internet for free anyway but that's not actually legal so mm-hmm. don't do that so did did the scrolls ever turn to the forces of good there were well, like I say, any story, you can tell any story, and mm-hmm. many have. And those, those include stories where um, the scrolls are suddenly the allies against uh, an even more horrible threat. There was or, a, there's, sorry. <laughs> sorry, well, Tom. There, there, was a, there was a top bisexual scroll story, wasn't there, a year or two ago, where um, someone, a, a scroll prince comes to Earth to woo one of the superheroes. And, uh, and and the lady superhero says, well, sorry, actually, I, I prefer girls. And the scroll is like, okay, I can be a girl. <laughs> and so off they go into space. <laughs> this is this is another story they can only really do now. <laughs> they couldn't really do that one in the 60s. But there have been stories where um, the... Uh, the sort of scroll scroll prince, you know, is locked up in a in a scroll prison, and the superheroes go off and, and free him, and you know, set him at the as the head of the empire, and you know, mm-hmm. suddenly, ah, oh, well, now the scrolls will be on our side mm-hmm. for at least a whole month. <laughs> and, and it turns out, and I remember the ending to this one very well because uh, the scroll sort of uh, he's he's been in human form the whole time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, finally he thinks he's going to die. And he says, oh, well, I will die as my true self and take my true face. And he, he shape changes. It turns out that he's actually handsome, not ugly like all the rest of the scrolls. <gasps> ah. And it's like, yes, don't you see? To the, to the scrolls, I am hideously ugly. And my good deeds are seen as very evil. Because all the scrolls are evil. He was, wow. He was almost more human than human. No. Or yeah, something. Well, not, not but actually a scroll. Given, yeah. <laughs> are, there, are there, like, other alien races that have hung about for... Well, long, in comics or, or anywhere. Like how, do, how do the scrolls, on, on your alien top trumps, how do the scrolls rate against the Klingons? Well, the Klingons, um, I mean, once you start comparing um, comics to TV, I think uh, recently, since the Klingons turned up, the scrolls sort of gradually started to model themselves on the Klingons in terms of their <laughs> warlike society. So suddenly there's a lot of stuff like honour and uh, mm. I would kill you. You, in the arena. Are you suggesting that, that maybe the writers of the scrolls had, had appropriated some of their story? I, I wouldn't dare to suggest that. There is another <laughs> alien race uh, called the Brood, who mm. were invented in I think the mid eighties, mm. and they um, they're a they're an interesting race in that they um, they breed by implanting their eggs in humans. Oh, and then you know while the human is having dinner, the egg then bursts out of the chest. An and, original idea. Well, yeah, this is this is of course based on nothing <laughs> but the, uh, the writer's own fevered imagination. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I suppose the 
the top TV alien races. Um, you know, you've got the Daleks and the Klingons, mm-hmm. and, and I think every every comic company has one stock alien race that they can call on. So are the are the scrolls sort of? I mean, are they like the Daleks? Are they the the Rentavil and very popular for that? Yeah, they're a bit more like the Treens, really. Well, the Treens were never that good. Well, exactly. <laughs> Are we um, going to see more of the scrolls? Oh, almost certainly. Well, the, the whole the whole thing is based on based on them now. I mean, we're we're almost seeing too much of the scrolls now, and that um, dozens of stories have um, had scrolls coming coming along and saying, and anything oh, "Now I will, now I will be good." But did they ever do sort of social stories or anything like that? Funnily enough, they did. There have been many stories where um, someone's been ranting at a podium saying, yes, we must get rid of the others, the others. We must, we must <laughs> destroy them. It's always, it's always the others. They can't, um, they can't sort of mimic any actual far-right uh, speeches. So it's like, uh, <laughs> get rid of him. His, his suit is different to yours. Well, uh, I don't want to go too far. And anyway, and then the, um, the, the, the man ranting at the podium, the, uh, the evil head of the fascist society, mm-hmm. suddenly it turns out he is the most alien of all. For he is a scroll. <gasps> no. And then all the people in the crowd were like, "Oh, what fools we were! <laughs> what fools we were to trust that alien being instead of uh, shaking instead of, shaking hands and you know em- making embracing up. one another." Yeah. Mm. Well, I think we're going to uh, going to see if we can find another song on the radio. Okay.
the planet without cars and wars. No wars, no cars, no wars, no cars. I wish it could be true. That was a uh, a song about um, wishing for a planet with no cars or wars, um, which happens to be by Ellen Alien, Ellen Alien. But uh, the um, the the kind of the subject of the song reminds me of another another person who was also dead against cars and wars, and uh, and wished for a planet without them, and and it wished it could be true, and actually took steps to to create a to create worlds of, of his imagining without uh, without cars, wars, or without plenty of other terrible stuff. But just can we introduce this gentleman before I raise my really enormous objection? In case, case, well, yeah, I know know what you're going to say, Tom. But in case you haven't guessed, this this man is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, Yes, and and the no wars bit of the. I think I think his general point about the wars in his stories were, were that they were bad. Really? Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, yes. He, yes. he, you know, he, he kind of it, presents them in a. It's not gung ho. I really wish this wasn't happening, kind of way. But um, yes, he um, he was a great fan of the fairy story form, um, which is what I mainly gonna gonna go on about. I'm not gonna go on about Lord of the Rings, or probably not that much anyway. Um, hopefully. So, did Tolkien write fairy stories? Um, he wrote um, yes, essentially. Mm-hmm. He he's written quite a lot of um, stories, which. I think he tries to make conform to his own particular theory of, of fairy stories, but, um, but mainly he wrote um, he, he lays this theory out in an essay called "On Fairy On Fairy Stories." Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he was sort of a theorist about it. Then. Yes, well, his interest in them mainly came out of his interest in language, mm-hmm. which was his first and foremost. Um, preoccupation and, and career yes yeah. invented languages and well and existing languages mm-hmm. he kind of he just loved languages basically mm-hmm. loved them mm-hmm. um but to the detriment of plenty else but not his fantasy world no no not his <laughs> fantasy world um he um he draws a very uh, explicit connection between languages the origins of languages the origins of consciousness and the mm. mind and um and thought um, to him, they're all very much intertwined, and to him, the creation of a of a fantasy world or a, or a fairy story is um, he describes it in terms of sub creation. Mm-hmm. So you have your your primary world, which is the the world around you, with right. you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees. Right. Um, He's not saying that world is created. That's, that's well, no, he is saying you. he is saying that that world is created because right. this this is where his religion comes ah, in. So okay. he sees God as the ultimate oh, creator, okay. but, but not I'm, by you. But it's there before you arrive. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, And then the process of story storytelling is is a subcreation within that world. Mm-hmm. But he um, he believes that um, art, the, the function of art in in this respect, is to create a, a kind of um, internally consistent world within within the primary world. So, so he's sort of saying that you did what the creator did to your world to somebody. Yeah, else's pretty world. much. The, the kind of um, a man is made in the image of God. God is a creator. Therefore, man on his level is also a creator. Okay. Um, so it's like um, uh, objects inheriting their classes from from senior objects when you're programming an object orientated languages. Magnus, it is exactly <laughs> like that. Probably. <laughs> 
Um, and, and, and he, but he, he sets a lot of store by the idea of internal consistency. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, he he's very keen on um, on the secondary world being informed by the primary world. So you know, you can have a green sun mm-hmm. um, shining. You know, he says anyone can imagine a green sun, but to kind of create a world where. Um, you know, the green sun shines and everything, you know, kind of makes sense is actually a, a, a higher form of art than just imagining the green sun. I've, mm. I, do have a, I do have several quotes that I've scribbled all over Ooh, the place. Oh, give us one. He says, Fantasy is founded on the hard recognition that things are so in the world as it appears under the sun, on a recognition of fact, but not a slavery to it. So, mm. um, the... the, the, the Secondary world has the inner, inner consistency of reality right. and is informed by it, um, mm-hmm. but um, you know is is also apart from it, right. simultaneously apart from it. So there there are malleable aspects which you can control. Yes, they they tend to be uh, they they have characteristics which you'd also recognise from the real world, and inevitably they they are inherited from. Them. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, he. Um, he does go into quite a lot of depth about um, what is a true fairy story, but mm-hmm. but he mainly kind of goes into depth about what is not a fairy story because he mm. get, he gets quite possessive about about the term fairy story. He um, stories about small people or, or you know diminutive people mm-hmm. are, are not fairy stories. Um, what well, mm-hmm. j- uh, just the fact that they're small does not make them oh, fairies. Right. Um, so he's saying it could be possible that there was a fairy oh, it story. Could, it could be, yeah, right. absolutely. But um, you know, he um, in one of Andrew Lang's fairy books, which he he kind of hates. Apparently, the um, the Lilliputians. Uh, there's a story about the Lilliputians right. from Gulliver's Travels, and he says, "Why why is this being presented as a fairy story? It's mm-hmm. it's actually a satire, and the Lilliputians are a satirical version of men, and it has nothing to do with fairy stories whatsoever. I don't know why it's in there." Well, that does make sense. But what if Lang was saying this is a fairy story? Well, I think I think um, that these collections of tales. I mean, I've no, I've never read them myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the but they were presented as collections of fairy stories. There were several books: a blue book, a lilac book, mm-hmm. a green book. Mm-hmm. Um, I presume they all came out in, in different. They years. would have been a, a fairly biggish deal when Tolkien was growing up, I guess. So that's yeah. why he's kind of kicking against them. Yeah, and and he hated them. Mm-hmm. Um, he he found absolutely nothing um, captivating in them whatsoever, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that you know they were kind of given does, they were intended for kids and given to kids. Does he think that there should be some kind of like psychological depth or or element to the fairy story, or isn't he as as bothered about that? Um, I think that's part of it, but he doesn't he doesn't put it in terms of of psychology. Um, he he he's much more mystical than that. <laughs> being Tolkien, mm-hmm. um, he he talks about um, what does he talk about? Well, what, what, what does well, he think that, that should actually be part of a fairy story? What's the if if there are these things he, which don't qualify? Is there anything which which yeah, is a necessity? He spends an awful lot of time on the things that don't qualify. But when he he does, um, there's actually a quote towards the end of the um, essay when he's actually talking. It kind of leads inevitably to um, the story of Christ being the ultimate. Um, I don't. I don't think he calls it a fairy story, but he says it has all the um, the essence of fairy stories. Mm-hmm. Um, not a not a satire, then. No, well, mm, no. <laughs> it says they contain many marvels, 
peculiarly artistic, beautiful and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance, and among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. Now, the eucatastrophe is um, another... Well, it's a, it's a part of his um, theory what, that... What is eucatastrophe? Is that is, Y-O-U catastrophe? Or? No, it's E-U, ah. E-U catastrophe. Mm-hmm. As um, in Eucharist. <laughs> yeah, well, mm. I guess so, I mean... Um, but this this is his um, this is for, for Tolkien the ultimate condition of it being a fairy story is that it has to have a happy ending. He is absolutely oh now that's that's a controversial. This, this yeah. obviously um, in these goth times in these, like, <laughs> in these emo times. Um, well, it sounds like he's a, he was something of a traditionalist then. Well, I I guess he was in a way. Um, Although, having said which, I mean, I would have thought that fairy stories aren't, I mean, this has been discussed already, but the, um, that they're not uniquely tied to, to happy endings. I would have thought there are plenty of examples which don't have them, especially in their, their unbalanced form. Well, yes. Um, and he, he rails quite um, specifically about the balanced of, you know, um, of fairy tales. And, and, and simultaneously, he says that, you know, the tale of Little Red Riding Hood, which in the fairy story version does have a happy ending apparently never used to mm. um you know she got eaten up it yeah. was all it was all bleak and when when she was eaten she was eaten she wasn't going to jump out of the, the oh no 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 i mean she went. she stayed dead but mm-hmm. but at some point the ending got changed and thus mm-hmm. the the true kind of fairy tale spirit was released mm. um but no of course fairy stories are some of them are among the mm. most horrible <laughs> grim inexplicable well, um i mean one of the one of the things that strikes me is that um Tolkien and um, and then sort of modern psychological theorists of the fairy tale and and such like they're all and and the people who say you know oh well aha but actually in the real story of Cinderella you know Prince Charming is an axe murderer or whatever it is <laughs> are all they're all kind of trying to find something more authentic under the fairy story they're not willing to take the fairy story as, as entertainment or you know, which is the kind of Andrew Lang thing, I guess. It's just like, oh, here's a cool story. I'll just, you know, what colour haven't we done yet? This can go in the grey fairy book. Mm. And it's like all this sort of thing. So there's this this sort of quest for the authentic. and uh, it, it all sounds quite cosy, doesn't it? Well, I think Tolkien was accused of being cosy. Michael Moorcock, who, who also wrote sort of enormously lengthy fantasy works, which are nowhere near as good as Tolkien's, to be honest, um, he, he had wrote a swinging attack on... On fairy stories, which was basically arguing that Tolkien's kind of idea of sub-creation was a, a very sort of middle-class idea, and was basically like kind of garden design or or, or hedge trimming, <laughs> or sort of you know building an internally consistent rockery. When you, when you mentioned this the other day, um, I did look it up, and uh, yes, I've heard it. it's called Epic Poo. Yes, Epic Poo. Epic Poo. Not not. Poo, poo, poo as in Pooh Bear. Oh, right. Yeah, so so he was it's, saying it's like a, an extended Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Basically. And, you know, could, it's all, all home Could he have been making a, a pun? <laughs> I think a pun may have been one of his objectives mm. in that title. And, um, and, and according to Moorcock, there's a sort of more, like, you know, there's a more primal and sexual and dark world under the fairy story. So he's, he's also searching for a, an authenticity underneath it. Um, it's a bit that sort of... The excuse given by a lot of um, a lot of sort of Sandman readers and uh, people who people who listen to I know vampires are alive and um, what is it vamp- vampire weekend they're not a I, I don't they're not actually vampire based they're not actually vampire based no um, I mean, um, to, Evanescence 
to um, I mean to defend Tolkien a little bit on that score, he does um, he does say that the one of the primary characteristics of of fairy stories, or uh, he doesn't so much talk about fairy stories as stories set in fairy. So fairy mm. is this kind of um, I don't know, spiritual or psychological land, which you visit when you write or read these stories. And he <laughs> says that the primary characteristic of them is um, that you desire things, that, that it gives you, it shows you things that you, you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I don't think Tolkien would have gone off on, you know, primal lustful sexual urges because he just wasn't that kind of dude. It was about expectations management. Yes. I mean, I, I, I was very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> The Book of Expectations Management. <laughs> By J.R.R. Tolkien. The Book of yeah, Cost-Benefit Analysis Tales. Peter Jackson will be directing I, um, that in 2011. I was very impressed by Moorcock's essay on Epic Poo, um, and indeed plagiarised it wholesale for an English essay that I wrote on The Lord of the Rings when I was 16, um, taking a, a fiery uh, rock and roll stand that... Tolkien was bunk and that fairy stories were a thing and I got a D minus <laughs> quite right and, um, too and the comment was this is footling <laughs> which is always is always springs to mind whenever I want to be stern about something I was following the eye 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 Um, yes, the most 
the most important magazine of the 90s uh, well not the most important magazine in the 90s but a very very important magazine in the 90s and one almost nobody knows about was one called Aslan um, which is of course named after the lion from the Narnia stories so kind of there's a link to Tolkien in there um, and it was a it was a journal of, of uh, role playing games started by some, some role playing gaming fans who basically decided that they were sick of playing games of like Dungeons and Dragons and such like and they wanted to to see if there was a way to kind of emphasize story and storytelling in these in these games and essentially sort of um improvise fairy stories uh is is one way of putting it trying to improvise a a sort of shared universe without the use of 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 dice or or rules or sort of adventures and success goals just stuff that would like arise organically from people's raw creativity so it was quite a utopian magazine um and um that's that's what i want to talk about today this so this is a sort of subgenre of something which uh was already quite popular have been since the the 70s the, the yeah sort of it was i mean thing. i it was it was basically the sort of equivalent of of, of jazz um <laughs> role playing <laughs> games and it was there was a there was a, an enormous improvisation element and the the basic idea would be the first of these things they originated in australia mm-hmm. um but the first one in the uk was a thing called the Fantasy Party, which took place at York University in, um, I think, the late eighties, and it was uh, the idea was it was t- it took a stock fairy story situation, which is a king wants to give his daughter away in marriage and has invited three princes to come and 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 kind of you know compete for her honour. Bid. Um, and but because there were like thirty or so people involved. There'd be three people who were playing the princes. There'd be one person playing the princess. There'd be one person playing the king. But then there'd be like the prince's retinue, the prince's servant, who was in fact the prince in disguise, um, mm-hmm. the, the you know various chefs, so, uh, ladies in waiting, and stuff. All of whom had an agenda and a and a plot. So who who composed this? Who would be the person in charge? Um, essentially, there'd, there'd be one person who'd kind of written and organised this this game, and and would would sort of hand out like. Um, you know, before the game started, a couple of days before the game started, would say, "Okay, you're the prince, and here's your here's your story. You're your a prince, and here's your story." Um, or, you know, you're uh, Scullion, but actually, you know, you are in fact a master thief who's trying to steal a diamond. Mm-hmm. And so you'd know what your character and your aims were. So it's a bit like a sort of a dinner party role playing game. Yes, exactly. Like, I mean, the murder mystery thing is mm-hmm. would would be quite like it, but that's much more kind of constrained and doesn't really emphasize the role playing. Mm-hmm element of things whereas this it's just like let's put these story elements in a room and go and one of the one of the things that is is most immediately obvious when you think about this setup is that it's virtually impossible for any particular player to actually know everything that's going on so the culture that evolved around it it's not like when you're sitting around in a a normal game and you're being told um you know right you're you're you know you're in a dungeon or you're walking down a corridor you're doing this or you're doing that and everyone knows everything that's happening. In this, you'd know the interactions you had. So it was more like a kind of online... Right. So it, yes. it could kind of go anyway. So if you suspected that the, the, the kitchen maid was trying to steal the diamond, but in fact she wasn't, but you acted on that suspicion. And yeah. So, you know, and, crazy things could and happen. And this, this was all done in real time and actually kind of acted out. So it was like a giant 
bit of improvisational theatre. Crikey. Um, how, how long did it last? Did people dare sleep? Three hours. Oh, that's um, not so bad. So very, very quick. I mean, I, I don't quite know how they managed to make it only the last three hours, other than just by saying, right, it's finished now, let's go to the pub. <laughs> um, but I guess sort of at the end, the king had to give the princess his hand in marriage, and that mm-hmm. kind of provided a resolution to the, the sort of macro plot. Well, it still seems to be sort of quite uh, encapsulated. It sounds as if there's something there which is, is thought through. Probably they had an idea as to how it was going to play out, even if they didn't know exactly what the details would be. Yeah, and like, you know, you, you wouldn't know necessarily which of the princes would get the princess, or maybe the princess would say, you know, you're all rubbish, I'm going <laughs> to run off with the master thief, or I'm going to run off with a scroll. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all scroll. <laughs> but, um, so yes, they were quite genre-bound, they were quite high-bound, and, but one of the things that... that when Aslan, the magazine, started writing about these, and it basically existed as a way to kind of write up what had happened, because if only one person, you know, if you only know your subjective experience of the game, mm-hmm. you can get a lot of entertainment by reading other people's subjective experiences of the game. Ah, and going, oh, so that's what was going on with the scullery kitchen maid and the this and that. Um, it sounds like quite a lot of opportunity to rewrite history as well. Yes, yeah, you can, you can, you know, you can say, yeah, actually, I was. You know, playing really brilliantly and wasn't just sort of drunk and shouting at people. My character was meant to do that. Speaking of rewriting history, um, isn't there the risk that uh, someone will sort of take the whole thing hostage? As in, you know, the master thief will, you know, run up and stab. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the one of the kind of on-running debates about this was, you know, who is fit to be playing in these advanced kind of (laughs) role-playing games? And you know, there's a certain amount of responsibility to the group. And if you go online and and look up freeform role-playing games, you'll find all sorts of like codes of ethics and Mm -hmm. and the role players' charter. But but so you can't just suddenly give yourself superpowers or absolute knowledge or something. No, quite very similar to the uh, the codes of improv. When Pete and you were saying earlier, it's a, it's a form of improv, improv yeah. theatre. But there's there's a rule in improv where um, you're not allowed to say no. As in, if somebody starts a scene by shouting, um, "My God, he's going into she's going into labour," and you know, miming pushing a trolley, it's very bad form for the other actor to go. But we're in a greengrocer's and you're pushing a lettuce. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. I mean, but but I think the thing that Aslan then became quite radicalised about all this and started writing up a lot of stuff that was coming out of um was coming out of australia primarily mm-hmm. and the idea of self-play in which you would play yourself but put into a situation that was out of the ordinary which obviously like opens up huge psychological kind of work <laughs> so like a one player would get superpowers in this and it'd be like okay you now have superpowers you can you know mm. you can wow. command <laughs> other people or you can like fly or something and 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 uh, you know then issues with aslan would come out in which sort of people being basically you know sectioned <laughs> after they played in these games i mean i don't think it got that bad but but there was a certain amount of like you know we're playing with fire here um so what have you encouraged to say commit a crime um well because the other thing that i think they realized is that you can't the the actual kind of right we're all in a couple of rooms that we've hired and it's going to last three hours and mm-hmm. we might have costumes or whatever doesn't really you've got to reintroduce if you're going to kind of expand the scope at all you've got to reintroduce a a, a tabletop element so there right. would be kind of i do this i do this rather than right. standing up and actually doing it <laughs> um but yes one of the things about self-play is that you mm-hmm. get people you know as themselves committing crimes and then their friends as their friends like reacting really badly or unbadly or something and, and it, it all became really heavy so people would find out things about themselves and also what their friends thought of them oh well, yeah i can imagine you know if, if you kind of went out and you know, committed a crime as yourself and you would just kind of be 
shunned or taken down the cop shop as yourself. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And, and then you know, it's like, how I was just playing, but you weren't. You were being yourself. Oh, and then uh, the other thing, the the other idea was was sort of games that were like because all these games had a referee, so there was somebody mm-hmm. who could in theory step in. But then it was kind of like, well, can we do refereeless games right. where like there's maybe a random or chance element, so mm-hmm. like playing cards or whatever to determine story beats? Can we right. kind of make it even more um, sort of far out, or can we can we have games where you can play literally anything? Like one character will be a tree, and another one will be an abstract concept, and the <laughs> game is about. What would an abstract concept have to say to a tree? So the tree meets uh, the principle of self-determination. Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Neither of which have vocal cords, so uh, yeah, a but, silent game. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the radicalism obviously had to stop. There had to be a certain concession to, much like the scrolls well, speaking I was going to say, well. much like any aliens ever, having a universal translator yeah. on hand. Mm-hmm. Universal Handling. translators were, were fairly common, but... <laughs> So it was this enormously sort of fertile and lively time for the hobby, and I never, I never played any um, self-plays, luckily. Mm. Um, but I, Do you think I, you would have been damaged, had you? No, actually, to be honest. I think <laughs> I'd have been kind of quite bored. Um, it would have just reinforced your knowledge there, of yourself. Yeah, there would have been the nagging feeling that actually I prefer to be in the pub <laughs> with these friends playing themselves, buying me a drink. Um, but I, we did... We, there, was, there was one game that, that I ran, which was an attempt to to sort of recreate a, Dickon, a, a, a Dickensian novel, so mm-hmm. kind of encourage hugely fantastically complex plots and, and people playing different characters in each scene and stuff. And it, it worked really well for like a few weeks, and then it just got too complex. And what we learned out of this and, and, and the moral, which sort of goes back to the, the Tolkien stuff, and in fact the Skrull stuff in a sense, it's a, a Marvel comics and such, like it's a huge shared universe in which people are continually having to elaborate and and build on things is that it's very very easy to improvise a story but it's very difficult to improvise an ending so or at least a satisfactory ending you get these kind of rushed endings where it's like okay the monsters have gone now <laughs> oh thank god oh, <laughs> let's go to the pub but presumably you've got all sorts of people with competing agendas and if somebody is wrapping up their story but it's doing so to the detriment of somebody else and they'll they'll want you to hold off before yeah and and yes and all this stuff you know, there, there there would be a lot of clashes, and I'm sure there were huge arguments, and 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 people lost um, lost a lot of friendships. But it 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 seemed like a very exciting thing, and I think it has something to say about storytelling and about communities. This whole mm-hmm. sort of area of of, of free forming, mm-hmm. um, as it's known. So. Uh- uh, how would it compare to say theatre? What would, what would, if you were to get actors doing this, would they tackle it in a different way? Um, I think probably the difference. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it'll be, in, I'd be interested to talk about this with people with experience of, of theatrical improv. Well, well actually has a bit. right, right here. I've, yes, um, yeah. I did do it for uh, about a year or so mm-hmm. um, in the the early part of the decade. Um, yeah, and it is basically. I mean, instead of three hours, it's at maximum you'll do a scene will last three minutes because right. you'll you'll get in, you know, get out before it gets stale. Right. Um, there'll be rules. The rules will be a lot more arbitrary. I mean, Tom was saying, you know, everybody gets a little card with a story beat on, or uh, might have uh, something randomly in their pockets, and they'll have to pull it out and then act on that. Yeah. Um, that's that's very much an improv thing. I mean, you get you get games, improv games are things like. Uh, Alphabet, where it would be you and me, Magnus, having a conversation where um, the the next sentence has to begin with the next consecutive letter of the alphabet. A. Uh, B. 
<laughs> yeah, well, we could just say the letters of the alphabet. That would be that would be a dull conversation. But it's that kind of thing. It's uh, it's short games with you know set up rules and then everybody just sort of bouncing off I each think, other. I think I think that's also quite. Um, the the fact that you you as an actor doing improv you're not self play it's not you mm-hmm. um, it's you as an actor doing it. it kind of puts another another layer in between you and the story which I think I, I think also probably there was a, a a different balance between story generation and character playing and mm-hmm. sort of the the actual kind of physicality and personality and such like of the acting whereas the the emphasis in in freeform role playing tended to be on to break the minds of the participants on, on what was actually happening in the in the collective story in the collectively generated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think we've uh, we're probably running a bit short of time now. Um, uh, wrap it up. If you're listening to us live, we're going to be followed here on Resonance by Clear Spot, Middle East Panorama, and some outrageously interesting music. Uh, and if you're a podcast listener, then uh, there are plenty of shows you can download from Resonance, including Panel Borders and I'm Ready for My Close-Up, uh, both of which connect with plenty of the subjects we've talked about today. Uh, they may well change your life, and that will certainly enrich it. Next week, Elijah Sessions will be talking to the Lollards on a really fantastic topic, which unfortunately must remain a secret until the show, for reasons that will be obvious when you hear it, which I hope you will, uh, at 7pm on Wednesday. And as for us, uh, we might be making it up as we go, but our stay in this overgrown countryside has, alas, come to an end. Wait! What? This isn't a field. It's the back of a giant rampaging swamp monster. But wait, that swamp monster isn't a swamp monster. It's an alien pet. But but no, in fact, none of this is true. And the entire story has been read up from an ancient ancient papyrus dug up in a cage near Jerusalem, a Dead Sea Skrull. (gasps) (gasps) but in fact in fact the Dead Sea Scroll is in fact a tattoo on the face of Christ yes So you you may say it's Christ, Al, but I say that we have all been acting out of fantasy on the Star Trek holodeck to to distract the crew while the aliens invade. No! Ah, well, aliens or not, we've been Freaky Trigger and the Lollards are pop, and this really is the end. Or is is it? it?